Hi friends, it's Tuesday. Just popping on before you start listening to this podcast to let you know that we talk about some deep stuff on this podcast and there is some intensity to it because we're talking about trauma and the survival of trauma and so there are stories shared on this podcast that we just want to like give you a heads up before you start. If you're up for it, please join us. We look forward to having you and if not, just kind of skip this one. Thanks so much. Hello, welcome back to Find the Outside the Podcast. It's good to have you with us. We always love being in your ears and sharing a little bit of your day. Uh, We're pretty excited to have uh, Ingo and Marcus with us today. And so Ingo Valken and Marcus Gottlieb. Now, the interesting thing about having Ingo and Marcus on here, and the reason why I'm a combination of excited and slightly disturbed, is that, you know, Ingo does couples counseling for me and my wife, and Marcus is like my personal therapist of the last six to seven years. So, you know, Tuesday's already tried to get the dirt out of them on me, which is just like, here we go. But I will say they've held professional confidence so far. We'll see what happens during the pod. Keep your, <laughs> keep your eyes on this space. Uh-uh. Anyway, um, so it's it's massively awesome to have them on the pod, and we've you know we haven't actually invited them on the pod to give the dirt on Tim Mary. We've invited them on the pod to kind of help us, apart from Tuesday, who's now like, oh, that's what we did. Um, uh, the reason we brought them on the pod is that for the first time, um, the outside is supporting hosting. Uh, a program called Behind the Mask of the Survivor. So it's the first time there's been a North American boarding school survivors workshop. Now, I, I do want to say that this is not to be confused with kind of indigenous residential and boarding schools, especially as we're hosting this in the new territory in Nova Scotia um, uh, on the kind of far east coast of Canada. This focus of this workshop is largely on the elite boarding schools that children from middle to upper class families are sent away to for as young as seven years old. So as we get into this conversation, know that's the context that we're talking into. Uh, and you'll hear lots of reference, I think, along the way from both uh, Marcus and Ingo. But Marcus and Ingo, before Tuesday, uh, you know, drops her first uh, incisive laser-like question to get the conversation going. Yeah, that's a solid nod from Tuesday there. Is there anything else the two of you would like to say to introduce yourselves, knowing that, you know, my introduction is purely personal. Is there anything else you'd like to say about yourselves or your work that feels an important kind of setup to the conversation we're about to head into? Well, um, I'm very grateful for this. Um, yeah, really excited about this opportunity and grateful for you, to you, Tim, for making it possible to um, expand the work and have opportunities to talk about it. Because I think it is a very important area of work and it's one of, one of the main areas of my psychotherapy practice. Great. Just just so the listeners know, this is Marcus. That's his voice. Yeah. Well, I can uh, only um, agree with that. Thanks for thanks for inviting us. Um, not so much to tell about myself in at this moment in time. I, I would know where to uh, uh, start. You know, I'm very very excited about the the project, and I'd love to talk about that. Great. Love it. Thank you. Thank you, gents. I I would like to say these two people are like legitimately trained, like therapists (laughs) and psychotherapists. Neither of them said, I mean, they could be like, they could be like Tuesday night, just grabbed them off the street, fancy running a program. No, these two are legit. 
Okay, they're highly trained, very experienced, run their own practices and uh, and work with people from various different parts of the world in their practice. And Ingo, I know you, for example, travel to other places with your work. And Marcus, I don't I don't know whether or if you do. But uh, so I think it's worth it's worth saying as we get into this. Choose, why don't you kick us off with a good question? Well, I will. And I just want to say out loud that, of course, they must be highly trained if they're working with you, Tim. I mean, come on. <laughs> that, that just feels like it's a baseline to figure out Mr. Mary. And so um, I have figured him out. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. That's the, blunt, Amen. that's the blunt truth. Nor have I. Yeah. <laughs> 17 years in, I'm still looking for help. Um, all right. So, so friends. So I do want to ask, why is it important for us to kind of get behind the mask? So Tim framed us up really well that this is around boarding school survivors who are from the upper and middle classes who have gone to kind of elite, uh, what we might call here in North America, private schools or independent schools, um, at, you know, as again, as distinct from the residential and boarding schools that have such a, a horrible history here in right. North America. Um, so why is it important that we actually do this work, that you all are doing this work? Um, I think that we don't hear a lot of empathy for those in the middle and upper classes. We don't hear a lot about, well, we should investigate the pain that is there. And so I'd love to hear both of you speak to why it's important to do this work. And then Tim, I'm going to ask you to kind of round that out by saying, why is the outside sponsoring this work? Mm. Well, um, maybe first of all, uh, I didn't get into this work specifically because it was about the middle or upper class. I was kind of like invited into the process by Nick Duffel, who's a pioneer in this in this mm. field. Um, I think he coined the phrase boarding school survivor, in fact. Mm. Um, so uh, he invited me in as a as an outside perspective, if you like, not mm. knowing that, in fact, um, my family is affected by boarding school uh, since my mother and my brother went. Mm. So I can feel the the effect it has on family. And uh, also, I think it's, to me personally, it was also relevant work because it's about institutionalization. In the, in the British context, if you like, it's very much about privilege. But in a more general context, it's about institutionalization mm. and the trauma that comes with it. And uh, you have that everywhere. And here in Germany, we have boarding. I'm, I'm from Germany. Um, that's where I work. That's where my practice is as well. And here we have boarding schools as well, for example, choir schools, church-run schools, elite music uh, boarding schools. And then, we have, of course, we have the boarding schools for the um, expat, uh, you know, diplomats and business people who have to be abroad, uh, which is the context my brother had to go to boarding school mm. in because my parents worked abroad. So uh, I think it's important work because we're dealing with traumatized people and it's always good to pay attention. <laughs> um, I would also say that it has an impact on um, probably more, again, in the British context, on society as a whole, because British society is run by a, a class of people who've been educated. I mean, this is a broad generalization, but uh, reading Nick's book about wounded leaders is is a good mm. um, indication of how deep 
the impact is on on the wider society, if you like, even on the European Union, Mm -hmm. uh, given recent events with Brexit and all of that. So um, I think it's it's a relevant subject in both the individual interesting case and and uh, compassion deserving individual who who suffered from it, as well as the, the broader society. What would you add, Marcus? Well, I would say that it's, um, as a Brit, it's, it's hugely um, influential on the tone of, of British society. And and it's, it's also not just that we're run by the products of these schools, but um, their attitudes, their beliefs, their, their ethos um, becomes something that everyone else aspires to. So even those mm-hmm. in senior positions who weren't themselves part of this private school boarding school system are, are very much affected by things which, you know, they have their positive aspects, like the kind of restraint that is often characterizes the British character. You know, that may have some relationship to this kind of uh, upbringing. But I think the thing is it, it was an overlooked field of, of psychotherapy given that it's something, until the last 20 years or so, given that it's something so important and, you know, to be sent away, whether it's at seven or at 12, you know, when you're still a a vulnerable and tender child, a dependent child, um, to be put in an institution, you know, is an experience which marks you. And extraordinarily, for 100 years, the first 100 years of psychotherapy, this was completely missed. Mm. You know, and it still very often is, and people go, people come to me and say, you know, I've been having therapy for 15 years, a couple of different therapists. We've never talked about the fact that I spent most of my childhood living away from my parents. Wow. In a sink or swim world, you know, and some sink and most swim, but what do they have to do to themselves mm. to, to swim? And I, perhaps I should mention, I, I did go, I went to boarding school when I was 12. And, you know, this, the class element is interesting because, um, you know, it's been said a couple of times, this is, these are elite schools for the middle and upper classes. And I think middle means something slightly different in America, doesn't it? It's sort of, but anyway, essentially upper middle and, middle and upper class families. And in many cases, there's, you know, a tradition within the family to have been sent away to such schools going down through the generations. But there are, there are many others, including my family, where, you know, I would have been the first mm. in, you know, a thousand years of Gottlieb's to have been sent to one of these schools. And then it's all about aspiring to join the mm. elite, the echelon. I mean, not my aspiration, of course, but, but my, my parents. So it's important to, because it's an experience which has marked a lot of people, affected a lot of people, and and it's about prematurely being adultified and um, put into very stressful circumstances um, for no good reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly want to ask more just because I feel like, um, and Tim, I, I just, I'm going to ask us to go back to it because um, we had Richard Beard on. 
So we heard a little bit about the boarding school experience, but I feel like the four of us, myself just being friends with Tim for all of these years, I have actually heard about the boarding school experience. I'm not sure that many of our listeners have. And so Marcus, you've just said several things there um, that that we know on this call about being sent away, being institutionalized. And so I want to dive into that, Tim. I don't know if you want to do that or talk a little bit about the experience, but I just, I'd love for people to get a sense of when we talk about the boarding school experience, what is it that one survives, right? Why Mm. is that word important? Um, And then, yeah, Yeah. Tim. Well, I mean, you know, but I think it connects to why it's important, Shoes. Yeah. And it's because these are children. it's, It's that simple, isn't it? It doesn't matter what class they're from, where they grew up, how, like on, a, on the most fundamental level, I mean, all of that matters. I'm not, I'm not dismissing any of that. Like, don't misunderstand me. Like, all of that are layers of analysis that we need to apply. But on its most, most fundamental level, these are children. And, and seven is just, I mean, like children go away as young as five, get sent away to institutions as young as five to go and live there, completely independent of their families, right? And so you have an environment where, you know, it's sink or swim. So it's very, very high pressure, right? It's very, very high pressure environment, but there isn't any kind of safe space within which to learn. So, you know, so I went from like living at home and like having my own, uh, bedroom and my own house. And, you know, my house wasn't a completely safe space, but relatively it was safe to what I was thrown into you know, to now living three hours away from home, train ride, right? Uh, the only things I've really got from home are my duvet cover, right? And a couple of jackets that like I can't wear because they get ridiculed because anything that stood out got, got ridiculed. Um, you know, and then, you know, within 24 hours of being there, you're in a situation where there's high levels of physical violence and abuse, right? There's sexualization of young boys by older boys. And there's absolutely psychological targeting and racist abuse within like, the first night of being there. I remember being, I remember being in there and there was, a, there was a chest of drawers that was put up against the window, right? They got one kid and they laid him on the ground in a, in a duvet, which is essentially a bedspread, and they rolled him up in the bedspread, right? And then they moved the chest of drawers away from the window ledge. This, uh, this is the first night we're there. And they put him up on the chest of drawers and they told him they were going to push him out the window. This is this kid's, he's, he's just turned 13. It's his first night away from home. And I don't care what background he comes from. And then they literally tell him they're going to throw him out there. And then they push him off the top of the chest of drawers. For all the fucking kid knew, he's been thrown out the window. Mm. I saw another kid fight back that night. It was a kid from Thailand, big boy from Thailand. Because they, you know... One of the elder kids had asked him to do something stupid. He refused to do it. And he said no. And one of the elder kids went to hit him and he started hitting them back. And then he was shown absolutely no mercy. None. None. He was shown no physical mercy. He was put in his place. And I'm not going to go into the detail of it. But that was just the first night. That wasn't even an escalated situation. And so you're putting these kids into environments where there's... On the most basic level, it's loveless. It's not familial, so it's loveless, right? On the next level, it's emotionally, psychologically 
and sometimes sexually abusive. But because, it, in my belief, because it's happened in the, uh, to those who have access to wealth, right, and privilege, those who have access in society, it often isn't acknowledged, right? It often isn't empathized with. And so these people end up in, just like Ingo said, they end up in, they end up fundamentally wounded human beings and they default into positions of power. They default into be judges and to be lawyers and to be politicians and to be CEOs and executives or directors of theaters, running TV shows, running kids programming, perpetrating the very things that were perpetrated upon them within institutions like the BBC. I mean, it's like, it, it becomes pervasive. Uh, yeah, so we can get onto why I don't think it's a particular, why I, don't, why I don't think it's a specifically British problem. But I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this. Like, why is it important? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because these are kids. That's why it's important. They're children, you know, who are being sent away from home and put in environments that are horrific often. Not always, but often. And then the last thing I would say is that, it's particularly important societally because many of these children end up defaulting into positions of leadership and power because of the schools they went to and the level of education they were pushed to succeed at, right? Marcus, you've been opening, you've been wanting to say something, I saw you. Well, I, I was just remembering various things, you know, people, the things that people have talked about to me. So, you know, sometimes it's incredible how young they are, you know, sometimes six or even younger. Somebody the other day was telling me about not knowing how to tie his shoelaces when he got to this place. And there's, you know, in a sense, tenderness to a degree or kindness from one of the other children who showed him how to do it. That was a small bit of good fortune, perhaps. But what a position for a child, you know, who's in an age where they should be tucked into their beds at night by a parent, not just sent across the seas to some... Quite often, you know, these people were ex British families in some part of Africa or, or Asia being sent to um, freezing cold, wet, grey mm. British schools that, you know, that were austere and, and, and grim. Um, someone recently was telling me about the first night in the dorm. That's right, he was, he was, uh, he remembers looking at the window and kind of uh, trying to calculate. Was he on the first floor? Was he on the second floor? If he jumped out, how much of an injury would there be? Would he get sent home? Mm -hmm. I remember how much I used to think of, what do I need to do to get sent home? Mm -hmm. And how impossible is it for me to tell my parents mm -hmm. because of all of their, some financial but mainly emotional investment? You know, I carried their dreams. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to tell them how awful it was. I wouldn't dream of doing that and that's a very unhealthy uh position for a child and then i hear very often about um the the taboo about crying you know people say well i cried the first night or i cried the first week or or i wet the bed or i wet the bed the whole of the first semester or whatever it is you know but then people will say well i i i discovered a technique for not crying you know, maybe mm. they were eight years old or something that they, they found a particular way of biting their lip or something. So they learn not to cry. What kind of man does that produce? What kind of, you know, what problems they're going to have one day in a marriage? Mm. I mean, like that as a child. It's like you, you're, you, you, the, the system is set up 
to deprive you of your empathy for yourself. So that you can govern an empire. There was a point to it at one time. Yeah. Mm. So that you, you could be a colonial administrator, officer, army officer, legal representative within an empire, you know, without having being able to make choices that weren't moved by empathy because the mm -hmm. belief was that's a better type of leadership. And if colonialism isn't a massive issue in the world right now, I don't know what is. <laughs> and engaging with boarding school survivors isn't a way to inform and understand and bring nuance to our conversations around colonialism. That's valuable work on the big picture, as much as for the heartbroken little human who had to go through the experience. And another big issue in the world also is exile. And mm. this is an experience of exile that these children are put through, you know. Uh -huh. And I remember because my older brothers were sent to boarding school, even younger in a more gruesome place than I was sent. And, um, you know, this term homesickness was used a lot. That's the word that's used. And it's a, it's a kind of, uh, this is very much a, um, a condition to be avoided, you know, like measles or something like that. Mm. And one, one school, um, somebody was telling me about, there was a, a jar labeled homesick, homesickness medicine. And he'd get a spoonful of that from the matron every evening. You know, but basically it was a sedative, presumably. Wow. Wow. Mm. And when exile is a huge experience, when abandonment, and which I, I imagine felt like abandonment by your parents is a huge experience, then you go through your life avoiding that at all costs, seeking mm -hmm. belonging, causing other people to exile so you're not, right? Like you can just begin to feel the cascade effect, right? But you think, I thought, I think I thought that it was privilege. I could only see it in that through that frame because mm -hmm. it had some of the elements, some of the elements of that. And uh, how, that's confusing. There's a cognitive dissonance, you know, that's that's installed there. Yeah, I was going to use the word mind fuck, but we could call yes. it confusing. Tuesday <laughs> 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 just got the explicit on our podcast again. Usually it's me. Every single pod we do, there's a little E next to it. They just default it now, I think. But Tuesday, you just got us the E. There we go. Look, I like it. Um, Ingo is moving forward. I just wondered if you might have anything to add here before we... Well, I think on t on top of uh, everything that was said on the on the individual level, I remember my um, my brother coming home from boarding school. Now he's ten years older than me, and we lived uh, across the you know around the world. We lived in in Myanmar at the time in Rangoon, and he had to you know travel for a day and a half to get there in the nineteen sixties. That was, and uh, when he when he came back to visit us, for me it was great. My my my, my big brother was there, who I hadn't seen in a couple of years or something. <laughs> and given the fact that I was maybe four years old, he was a stranger. So he he was a stranger in his own family. Although, mm. um, so so there's a double loss. I would have thought um, uh, of of first you're being sent away, and then you've lost the place that you can come back to. Because mm. uh, that's uh, and 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 we moved while he was at school, so we moved places. So there was a loss of of that. That you know, there was no homesickness because there wasn't a home to remember for him. I think. Wow. Uh, so that's compounding that thing that, and a lot of the clients uh, talk about that as well. That not only uh, did they lose a home uh, when they were sent away, but they also lost a home 
because they couldn't come back in in one way or another, whether physically their home wasn't there anymore or whether it had transformed in a way that they weren't part of the fabric anymore that was the day-to-day living there. So um, that's not to be underestimated. I think that it's a, it's an overall loss. It's not just during school term, you mm-hmm. know. Um, Ingo, and I, I just there's like there's like a connection that's just been made for me, like hearing you say that, which is that like like that when you're a stranger in your own home, right? That actually creates the conditions for a whole set of really unhealthy behaviors to siblings and to parents. Right, very, very dangerous behaviors, actually, you know, and so, um, yeah. So I, I mean, I don't know how I, I'm going to hold at the point of like revealing too much about myself, but like, but also for parents to consider their own children strangers in their home. Mm-hmm. Well, my parents had me at home eight to nine weeks of the year, mm-hmm. you know, because there's always one or two camps I was being sent away on in the holidays, Easter holidays or summer holidays. So actually, I probably spent between eight and nine weeks maximum at home a year from the age of about 11, right? So like I was a strange, I was kind of an interruption to their routine, mm-hmm. right? To their life. And so it's, it's not just that you feel a stranger yourself. It's that the people who are in your family experience you as a stranger. You know, and, and, and like, there's no, there's no doubt in my family it, that, that being a stranger in your house, your own house created a very unsafe household in my family. Very, very unsafe for all of the kids created a very unsafe household. But it just, it just clicked for me when you said that. I was like, oh, it's that, it's that being a stranger in your own house that can create the condition for this set of behaviors. But then again, you've got people growing up in these unsafe houses who then default into positions of authority and power. I just, I, I just want to keep reminding people that like we're doing personal work here, but we're actually also pointing to a class and a group of people that default into positions of power all over the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially if they're members of the expat community. I mean, people go into all kinds of lines of work and they're not all um, leaders. Um, but they're all marked by this experience and scarred, I think, in different ways. So I suppose you're talking there about the people who can do the most damage. Yeah. I mean, actually, if I think about my closest friend who I went to boarding school with, he's a social worker in one of the toughest communities in northeastern america do you know in northeastern usa do you know what i mean like he's that's what he does he's a social worker who works with families he's taken his traumatic experience and made as much sense of it as he can for where he is in his life and has put it to work in the world in a way that he feels is helpful you know Ooh. and um so you're right it's it's it's, it's too much of a simplification of, on my part to say they default into positions of leadership but and and it's also true you know and why should he have had to go through that? Right, in order to yeah. Become a person who could. Yeah, I mean, his stories of like how he was treated in his first prep school and by his headmaster. I mean, it's just it, it's horrific. It's horrific, unimaginable child abuse. So, Marcus, you indicated right that it's only been the past twenty years that we've really been looking at this or dealing with this, and you all work very closely with one of the pioneers in the field. I'm curious. 
how did this come to light? How did this become a field of practice? We're bringing a workshop to North America, right? So obviously something's happening here, but can you tell us a little bit about like, how did this come into being? What is this field of practice? What's happening in it to work with boarding school survivors? Ingo, do you want to say something about how Nick got started with this? I mean, he's really the... um... I know that he came across... Uh, um, he just recognized something in, in clients. Uh, I, I, he, he was a boarding school, uh, survivor himself or is rather. And, uh, ironically, I think he was a teacher in one for a while as well. Oh. Wow. And I don't know, he must've just had a, had an intuition for it or, or, or a sense of, of the importance, uh, uh maybe it, it, uh, he, he could recognize it through his own experience and then um, went into the work. I, I honestly don't know much more. This is more a British question, to be honest, uh, in that sense. What I do know here in Germany, where the, the problem is also, I was, I was going to add that on the, on the previous thing. Um, here in Germany, what, what I'm seeing is a difference between um, people who've been socialized in the old East Germany in the GDR because the institutionalization there was a lot earlier. So they wouldn't, weren't sent away to boarding schools, but they were sent away to daycare and, and also sometimes homes of some to just rationalize the workforce, if you like, yeah? Uh, which in the, in the positive mode was uh, marketed as uh, equal opportunity for women. Uh, mm. Everybody could and should and needed to work. And uh, but the kids uh, were deprived of family in that sense. So I come across very similar phenomena in my in my practice here in Germany that remind me of the boarding school work, mm. although it's got nothing to do with privilege in that case. But the trauma looks very similar. Um, so I think in that sense we also. Have a broader field to explore in terms of how do we deal with with childcare in general as a society as mm. as we need to be more and more productive in the world and and uh, so how do we how do we keep the the um, capacity of a young family to tend to their their children as well as give them both the opportunity to be able to be to be in the workforce and, and productive and all of that so i find that's an that's an interesting tangent but it's informed by the same material in a way mm-hmm. yeah i don't know that's not no answer to your question but um um, as far as I understand it, Nick, and, and there was there was maybe also an element of zeitgeist there, where it was time to start looking at this stuff because he mm-hmm. wasn't the only one, and uh, there's a whole group of people who emerged all around the same time. Correct me if I'm wrong, Marcus. Well, I wonder if it was also you know the whole subject of child abuse uh, came yeah. to the fore in the late '80s in Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, there were there's a lot of television documentaries and interest in the subject, which had been entirely hidden. I wonder if it was a development of that. And new laws came in um, to regulate the amount of the type of punishments that could be meted out at schools. And mm. yeah, the zeitgeist, yeah. Yeah, I actually remember, I remember a law coming in where I lived where, where corporal punishment wasn't allowed in uh, kind of government-sponsored schools, but it was still allowed in our school. You know, and so it was just, it was, just, I, I remember that. 
I remember that coming in. But there was there was Jay, Jay Chevron as well was doing research at the time. But even when I, you know, when my therapist in Canada uh, was like, was like, you need to have a look into your archetype. Do you know what I mean? Son of a colonial family, grandparents who lived overseas, you know, multiple generations who've gone to British private boarding school, you know. He's like, there's got to be some work on that. There's something, you know. And once I started looking into it, I started to discovering that, you know, the making of them, which is the book by that you've both been re referencing by Nick. You know, I found some articles by Jay Chevron. I found the boarding school, uh, boarding school survivors website. I found boarding school action, you know, Facebook page, you know, but it was it was still pretty thin. Like I reached, I reached the limits of the research pretty, I mean, choose, I'm sure we talked about it at the time. I reached pretty quickly the limits of the research, you know, and, uh, and, and in a funny way for me, that was almost a motivator. Mm. I was like, Ooh, I can mm -hmm. be part of something here. Mm -hmm. I can be part of building something. I can be part of building a, like a body of knowledge, a practice. There's like a blind spot in our analysis and understanding, you know, of a whole section of society. And in place of that blind spot is assumptions, right? And a narrative built on anecdotes. And I was like, well, what if we were to really like build some nuance around how those who are inverted commas in the ruling classes are educated? you know, uh, and then what edu and how that education has an impact on their leadership in the world, right? Which is of course where the outside is so interested because so much of our work is around the, the leadership that is being carried out within organizations and institutions and systems, right? Um, but, uh, but I do, the, I mean, the only other thing I want to say, and I'd be interested in Go and Marcus, what you feel about this is that, you know, for me, it wasn't just that I, when I went to, when I, when I went away to school, like I was born into a family culture that aligned with the school I was going to be sent to. Right. It's not like I went to school, uh, do you know what I mean? And suddenly discovered British reticence, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, it's there, you know, or the prioritization of productivity over everything else over happiness, over relationship. And, and I think those patterns exist in, in many families that are able to generate and create significant amounts of wealth or power in today's society, you know? And so I think the, I think the patterns that a child experiences in boarding school um, can often be patterns that exist within many, many families that have access to power and wealth in general. And, uh, and so that's kind of what I've been thinking about a lot since I've been doing this as I, as I engage with senior leaders in different places and in different contexts, I think a lot about what's the family environment that created the lack of empathy for the way you're behaving or the system you've set up, you know, and sometimes it's not that they've been to boarding school, but they've actually just grown up in an environment where the circumstances of boarding school were also in place for them. And that, and that, you know, my investigation of my boarding school life increases my empathy for those people and therefore my capacity to support them on their journey as leaders. You know, is that a reach too far? What do you think? My background was a little different. It was uh, so from a, a Jewish family that, I mean, uh, I suppose the immigrants had been my grandparents and great grandparents, but the, Maybe there's a certain kind of an archetype, maybe of, of kind of shape shifting, 
seeking for mm. security, how do we fit in? How do we become unrecognizable, mm. sorry, indistinguishable, I think I mean, from people who are secure here mm. in this place? And, um, you know, I some some teacher who I, I guess I'll have to forgive one day suggested to my parents, you know, young Marcus could make it into the most elite of schools. And, of course, that was hugely exciting and relieving for, for mm. my parents. Um, yeah, so I, I guess there is a kind of a, I don't know, sociological or historical even context. You know, I forget how it wasn't that many years after, you know, before I was born that the Holocaust had happened. And, and there is a memoir by Frederick Raphael, writer, uh, American Jewish boy in Britain being sent to one of these elite schools. Um, and in, he refers to what was called the numerous clauses, which was a, uh, a maximum number, a, a limit to the number of Jews that would be allowed into any of these schools. As soon as the war was over, it was slammed back in place. Mm. It was like they couldn't wait. I think he, he's quite a good uh, sardonic writer. He talks about the, these teachers who were clearly terrified of hordes of Hebrews and kind of overwhelming these, these uh, institutions. So, yeah, there was a lot of prejudice. And, you know, to, to my cost, I was thrown into the midst of it. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt for all, with all the best intentions on my parents' part. Yeah, I think there could be two reasons for that aspiration, or or not the aspiration, that drive, if you like. One is the the, the inheritance that you know the, the family background you're talking about, Tim. In terms of, I don't know, we've always been part of that class of of society. But I also remember a case of a of a group participant. Um, he came from Asia. And uh, he told the story that his whole village put together, they, they saved money as a village to send him to boarding school and, in fact, falsified his birth certificate and made him a year older in order to send him away at the, at the age of two and a half. Oh, my. And, he, and, and then he, he told the story of saying, and then in, during the holiday, I, was, I, I came back home to my village where... His father, I think he was a, a teacher in this village, while his classmates were going on to holidays in Dubai or whatever, yeah? Um, so so there's a, this element of, of, of having to do well could be motivated from both ends of the spectrum, I mm. think. It's not all That's being right. born into privilege. It's also the aspiration of coming into privilege. Mm-hmm. Wow. And... Uh, and I think in terms of leadership, I work a lot with sort of um, people from around where I live, a lot of uh, international corporate, you know, corporations, essentially. And I think sometimes I think there's even a, a, a method in the recruiting, you know, you want them hungry kind of thing. And then they they climb because it's a way out or something. And and, and I asked one of the, the higher managers whether, whether he would say that's true. And he said, of course. Of course, we recruit like that because then you get driven people, and 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 I think somehow that plays into somehow the the uh, I don't know in terms of leadership, and I have no real insight into the corporate world. I see it from 
from my perspective, which is interesting. Um, yeah, but the but the survival pattern, the survival pattern that you develop as a human being, seems to then become a management um, method. You know, mm-hmm. um, I went through this. Why shouldn't you go? Or uh, you know, you can work harder because I can. Or whatever it is, there's something that I, I take my what what Nick would call the strategic survivor personality, and and make uh, a leader out of that, make a make a manager out of that, and that's where it has a huge impact on. You, I, and I think you can see it. Some some CEO gets replaced, and the whole company goes, Whoo! you know. Um, yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking about how you can see that in so many fields, like just what you described, Ingo, like. I saw that when I was in the academy, right? Like, so when I'm in an academic institution, it's like, well, we suffered to get tenure. You can too, right? Mm -hmm. I work with docs and they're like, well, we got, you know, we got our MD and didn't sleep for eight years. You can too, right? Like it just begins Mm -hmm. to perpetuate. Um, Mm -hmm. I know we're, we're beginning to, to, to wind down, but I wanted to ask you, what can people expect at this workshop? Who is it for? Like what, you know, like, so we're going to have a workshop in, I believe Tim helped me June and October, I think. Do you want to give any specifics there? And then I want to ask, like, what can people expect there? Yeah. So it's a, it's two sessions. So the first session is 6th to the 10th of June and then October 5th and 6th. Um, and uh, you can go onto the outside website and just click on courses at the top of the website and you can see Boarding School Survivors North American Workshop there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that's it. And you can you can sign up and then you can fill in an application and then we'll get back to you. But why would I come? What What's going to happen there? Well, first of all, we, we're going to make it a welcoming and comfortable um, environment so that it's the anti-boarding school in a sense. Mm. It's like you can speak. Your feelings are welcome. Mm. Everything about you is just, you know, we're interested and we're not um, going to judge. And um, we'll... We'll look at, as the days go on, what um, Ingo was talking about, survival patterns, really, what we learn, mm-hmm. how we learn to manage, and how we've taken our strategies, strategic survival patterns into our current lives, how they affect us, the, the, the roles we play, the, um, the masks we wear. Uh, we may do work actually with masks and see how that how that pans out. Mm. And yeah, I mean, my interest is increasingly in defense systems, how the autonomic nervous system goes into different kinds of defense systems and how we can learn to regulate ourselves and manage our lives and our relationships better. So that will, that will feature as well. Yes. And, uh, um, so it's, it's a mix for me in terms of the concept that we're working, that we've worked out. Um, of first of uh, an experiential um, getting to know yourself a little better as a thread through and then uh, and discovering your very individual survival um, mm. mythology and and also comparing it to the um, discovering some generic traits to it to go ah I'm not the only one who who, who deals with stuff like this and there's going to be some also just modeling and or, or education in the sense like like what Marcus is talking about, autonomous nervous system going, how, how does it actually work? 
when we when we get triggered what does it mean to be triggered so um, touching on trauma work in general because i would call this developmental trauma essentially what happens to to children there um and then also some quite uh, uh, applicable tools and practices and routines that we, we're going to build into the workshop as well to say, you know, on a daily basis, we do X, Y, Z, and you could take that home and continue this as mm. a practice. So so we give you a head start, if you like, in, in something very tangible that uh, you can then figure out whether it works for you or not and uh, or which one of those will work for you and where, where your personal preference is. And then in the second half of it, you come back and uh, we'll look at uh, where you got and what the stumbling stones still are and where you can. It's, it's much more individual work in the sense that we, we're then hoping that the participants will bring back uh, thing from the, the time in between where they have started to work on themselves, started to experience what it's like to confront this stuff and be helpful in individual sessions in a group setting. So this is still going to be a group, but the focus is going to be on the on the individuals and what they bring back and how they think, which direction they want to go and, and to be, uh, you know, in some shape helpful for, for that process. Yeah, I love it. Thanks, Jen. So when I flew over to London to do the workshop, uh, you know, I, I think one of my greatest fears was that it was going to just like, un it was going to like break the dam mm. and I was going to be like drowning on the other side of it. Cause I've just like so successfully held back so much for so long that if I started opening up on this, it, do you know what I mean? I was just going to become an, a human being who could no longer walk, talk, and breathe, mm. you know? <laughs> like that was my fear going in. I was like, oh my God, what am I opening up? You know? And uh, and my experience was that um the the speed, quality, content of opening up was up to me. Like I wasn't forced to share or do mm. anything I did not want to. Mm. Right. And that was it was that was a critical part of the experience for me that I could be there and be myself at the stage level development that felt right for me, you know? So I think that was a really, really important part of it, you know? And so, so while at the same moment I'm saying it's not like the dam broke and then like I was desperately trying to stay above water. What I will say is that is, is the two weekends that I went to the UK, like absolutely kickstarted a shift in my self-knowledge and go, I thought that was great. I really relate to that, you know, but it wasn't just self-knowledge. It kickstarted a shift in my relationships to my kids and to my wife. Yeah. You know, the most important relationships in my life began to change and mm. get better, get better. I think the best compliment I got ever from my daughter was, was, was when she said, yeah, you, you used to get, you used to get really mad. It was like your whole face would change. And then you went into therapy and started getting nicer. <laughs> you know? Beautiful. I mean, I just, you just can't imagine a better compliment than that from your, mm. at the time she was 16, 16 year old daughter. Mm -hmm. If that, if, if there's a thirst in you for that, if there's a hunger in you for that, for some self-knowledge that could, you know, incrementally improve the relationships with the people you most love. Mm -hmm then I think it's a worthy journey, or at least it was for me.
Yeah. Yeah, I like that very much. And and I have to say one of the most rewarding aspects of being a therapist for me is to see how people's relationships change and that in relationship it, it comes out in relationship, whatever it is you need to look at, you know. And and therefore doing this kind of introspection and work is is usually very beneficial to, to the relationships here. And 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 in a way, that's the most essential thing we're dealing with anyway in, in life, I think. Um, but that's where we have the problems and the joy and so on. So hmm. I hope we can do it in this spirit, Marcus, what yeah. do you reckon? <laughs> well, you know, to provide people with a space where they won't be judged and they can just, you know, tell the truth to each other in their own time at their own pace and receive empathy. Is incredibly powerful, you know. It's transformational, and um, it's nice to become a nicer person. You know? And uh, it's nice for your partner as well, your children mm-hmm. if you have children. Yep. <laughs> Thank you all so much. I'm so appreciative of your coming here and talking with us about this workshop. And Tim, I'm so grateful that you've kind of shepherded this through the outside and that we get to offer this to people. Um, what a, what a, what a thing that is aligned with what we're trying to do with the outside. And yet, um, like a little bit like to the right, I feel, I can just feel us expanding as an organization on what we're trying to do in the world. And so I just want to reiterate how grateful I am to the two of you for coming and being with us, even though you didn't, you know, drop any secrets about Tim. That's all right. That's right. No Tim Timbits bits dropped. No Timbits dropped. Uh, I'm just feeling really, really grateful and thankful and excited, excited yeah. that we're going to offer this and and hopeful for the folks who will participate. Yeah. And just, you know, again, gratitude, gents, for like, you know, being the ones who are willing to explore bringing this over into North America mm-hmm. um, to see how, how it lands and support people who are living over in this, this continent, as well as the workshops that have been happening in the UK now for many years. So it's a real honor for me just to be part of it in any any small way I can. And you're right, Chuse, the outside is expanding and it's expanding as we expand, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is. mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, folks. Good to have you with us. See you next time. Bye-bye.